0: Good afternoon. My name is John Herbst. I am the director of the Dinu Petruccio Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. We've got a great program for you this afternoon on the Russian military in Ukraine and Syria. Uh, you have a wonderful speakers. Dr. Ariel Cohn will moderate the discussion. Ms. Alexander Golds, a true expert from Moscow, here with Kennan will contribute, as will General Peter who was the U.S. military attache in Moscow. And I will also join the the panel. You have bios in front of you, so I will not read them. Let me just mention that if you're following us, we are at hashtag RussiaFactor. And with that, I will turn this over to Ariel.
1: Good afternoon. Um, I'm Ariel Cohen, uh, here at the Atlantic Council. We have a terrific panel. Uh, with a combination of military, uh, military analysis with uh, Sasha Goltz, and diplomatic and regional expertise. And I'm sure that the expertise here in the room will contribute greatly to the discussion. The escalation of hostilities in Ukraine and the consequent uh, engagement of Russia in Syria made us look anew uh, at Russia as a military power. Uh, There is a lot of discussion in this town about information and hybrid aspects of Russian power projection. But it's a hard power that really concentrated our attention in the last three years. What did we learn about the Russian military, both the hardware and the military strategy and tactics? What can we tell about the Russian military industrial complex? For years, many analysts, myself included, like to write about how aging the personnel in the Russian military industrial complex is, what will happen after they retire, is the instruction and training system adequate, and we see now that new systems that I'm going to ask our panel about are being uh, put online what is the kremlin's economic muscle after all on a good day when the oil prices are high russian gdp is 1.3 trillion sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less versus 17 plus 18 trillion gdp in this country comparable gdp in europe and um, a massive GDP in Japan. What does it mean for sustainability of a military effort? As China is increasing its military muscle, what does Moscow do? I think not much. So what are the geopolitical implications of Russia becoming a harder military power than we saw before Ukraine. In terms of longer-term power projection, is Russia going to try and reinstate its naval bases in Vietnam and Cuba? Uh, Is it focusing on supporting Iran in Yemen because it remembers its presence in the Socotra Island in the Arabian Sea? The fact that Russia is reestablishing relationship, not just with Syria, but also with Egypt, and there was a report of Russian Spetsnaz in um, the Egyptian desert not far from the Libyan border, does that mean Russia has an agenda, including a military and naval agenda vis-a-vis Libya? I think, yes. The support of one of the warlords there tells us a lot about it. So at this point, uh, I would like to start with General Zwak. General Zwak was our military attache in Moscow, has an illustrious military career. And I enjoyed having him on my TV show uh, together with Alexander Gold. That's how we got this idea for this panel. So General Zwack. Uh, President Trump says that he wants to make America great again. Senator McCain, Vice President Pence, and others are saying, said in Munich recently, that America does not abandon its role of the leader of the Western world. Is this possible for us to continue being the leader of the Western world with the level of armed forces we have in Europe? You know Russia, you served there, you looked at their operations in Ukraine and um, Syria. Do you consider Russia a threat to our NATO NATO allies in Europe and to non-NATO members in Central and Eastern Europe?
2: i write a whole chapter on that. Um, Thank you, um, Errol. Um, First of all, um, is the United States Um, Yes, we need to do some modernizations, we need to do some upgrades in our military, and and we need to perhaps increase some of our capabilities. But I make no mistake about it, and I think that uh, the Russians and everybody else in the world understand that the the United States' uh, ability to project power militarily and through, if you will, the uh, soft power side is still uh, the most powerful in the world today. Um, And and, um, while we have a lot of work to do, um, um, we are, we're, again, very powerful. What what does concern me, and we'll get it back, is that we have had our optimism shaken a little bit. That whatever you would call American optimism has been shaken, I think, in the last few months that will come back. Um, And um, as far as the Russian military goes, um, since, since 2008, Georgia, and the new look reforms, and then certainly between ni- 2014 and 2017, where you've had now the full spectrum of whatever you call gray zone conventional operations to, to strategic level conventional operations in Syria, whether it is little green men in, in, uh, in Crimea, it is um, non-attributed variations of uh, of um, proxies and main force Russian troops uh, deployed in uh, eastern Ukraine, and as I discussed in Syria, the Russian military is much, much better than it was before. However, its increase, its improvements are uneven, and we can get into that in more detail. Capability-wise, they present a threat. Um, however, um, as far as all the instruments of national power, and I think the Russians understand this better than we do, frankly, um, in a straight-up, if you will, conventional conflict with the United States and its allies. To get at your point, um, um, it, it doesn't want to go there, which is why you work, if you will, the more um, you know, the more undermining aspects <laughs> of it. But uh, no, we're get we're we're still. A very very impressive military uh, power and nation we just have some work to do
1: just to follow up on that my colleagues um, in sort of the Russian military analysis space wrote about two Russian militaries one military is to fight a war in Europe actually three I would say one military to fight a global nuclear war rocket forces space forces and the third military that goes all the way back to the 18th and 19th century, which is essentially a local operations, regional and border military. Can you quickly give us marks or grades, General? Uh, It's it's so full of uh, How the reform in which one of these types of the military uh, fared so far? All right.
2: The, um, if across the breadth, if you will, of the Russian military, as I said, their development is uneven. Um, the military, nobody knows the exact statistic, is still 30 to 35 percent conscripts. Um, which mean one-year conscripts, meaning it is for those, anybody that's been in the military, to bring in someone for a year, train them, have them there, off, uh, and while the military is more popular than it used to be, it's still not popular for everybody. This creates a, a, a very careful dynamic And how do you commit forces outside of the borders And how do you hold ground in contested terrain? So you have that space. The Russian Federation is only plus or minus about 145 million people. That is about 40% of the United States, uh, an eighth of the People's Republic of China, and about a third of the EU. So out of that, short of a major mobilization and call up, which would be challenging in its own right, the Russian military, while big, is hard-pressed to put a million people into the field, active duty, and when you compare that with the other pulls on their military power, meaning a National Guard that that, that my friend Sasha was just telling me. It's up to about 350,000, of which 16% are conscripts, but the rest are volunteers, an an interior ministry force, much smaller than it used to be, and a very, very large uh, array of security services uh, that all pulls off of the same manpower pool. So the Russians have a hard time, in my mind, generating a lot of of combat power across all their borders at one time, meaning they could probably do something very well in one area, hold everywhere else. Uh, And I think increasingly, the military is built to get into somewhere quickly, because they understand the correlation forces better than anybody. Um, they know in a stand-up conflict with us and our allies, it's not going to go well for them, so they have to get in fast, they have to soften the ground with Moscarovka and, dis- and disinformation, um, um, uh, and they are much better with their electronic warfare, their uh, uh, ISR, reconnaissance, command and control. These things, the Russians have really improved, and we've seen that. In, in the three, uh, in the three, if you will, episodes between 14 and 17, much improved, but they have a lot of challenges, and they have to think very hard about making a major lunge outside of the border. Uh, 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 Syria showed how they could focus. It's not that big an operation. As far as num- numbers, but as far as significance, they moderated it, they modulated it, they put together a force package, they did their operational security really well, and they executed a, a frankly, from a military perspective, a a a, um, a, a, a very very uh, well executed operation. But I don't want to pull away from my my friend <laughs> Sasha, and please.
1: No, and uh, I have uh, the next question to Sasha, just to a footnote to what you said, if they feel inferior, the incentive for that type of force to escalate to tactical nuclear grows. The, the, it's, uh, you see
2: the Russians focus on asymmetries. And I would submit, ladies and gentlemen, an asymmetry is, first of all, a realization of your own vulnerabilities, and the Russians know that. And then they will identify a, a, a group of nations such as ourselves, and they'll look for our weaknesses or how they perceive their soft spots. Sure. The information campaign and all of that, free speech. Um, um, and, and, um, and you saw an episode of that in our own country just a few months ago with the, what occurred with our elections and, and completely turned ourselves inside yep. out. So, so, so um, They will be about first strike, they will be about surprise. They have to get the drop on us. If it goes that way, the Russians do not want to go to war. But they're certainly preparing for it. And there is a bit of a barracks mentality in Russia getting ready for it in the population. They're just telling them that. They don't want to do it. But, but uh, if there are things that occur that would create, from their perspective, a necessity to launch, probably within the FSU, That's something we have to watch. But it'll be surprise. They'll soften the ground. And it'll probably be what we see as an offensive action, a preemptive reaction on their part.
1: Uh, And what do you do with uh, preemptive reaction? I I like that. What do you do it with Sasha Goltz? Uh, Let's review the weapon systems. The modernization of the nuclear triad. They just announced a couple of days ago that now they have a missile that can surpass, and penetrate any American missile defense. Uh, What do we see? What kind of wars Russia is preparing to fight? Is it defensive or offensive? Against who? Uh, Where? Is it military? Um, Is it military on the level of US and China, in your your view? Or is it falling behind? In particular, I wanted to ask you about the allegedly stealth uh, fighter, which was not the funds for its deployment were not appropriated uh, in the last budget. The Armata T fourteen tank. Uh, what what about that? And uh, the new um, dis- or the discussion about the new aircraft carrier, which would I would call it Ulyanovsk
3: Plus. Um, if you permit, uh, I w- just a few words about Russian military reform, which leads us to understanding to what uh, war we are preparing to fight. Sure. Uh, the basic of so-called Serdykov's reforms that took part uh, from 2008, to 2012, was rejection of mass mobilization concept. Because for obvious reasons, uh, it, it's all about demography. This concept cannot work in a situation when um, uh, each year only 600,000 young boys reach the age of 18. Uh, this mass mobilization works uh, in this case to keep uh, uh, 1 million armed forces. You had, uh, um, uh, had uh, call under colors, all of them, all these 600. So, Uh, The idea was (coughs) to reject this concept of mass mobilization. And uh, to you, to understand the scale of this reform, I'll give only one figure. The number of units within armed uh, ground forces uh, was reduced in 10 times, from uh, 1,189 to 183 only. As the result, they received fully manned uh, units, which do not need additional mobilization and and can act immediately. Uh, The biggest success of Russian armed forces, I don't think it is Crimea or Ukraine or Syria. The biggest success happened before Ukrainian crisis, few days before Ukrainian crisis, on 26 February 2014 when Putin announced SNAP inspection. And in two days, more than 40,000 troops were deployed along Russian-Ukrainian border. Let me remind you that in 1999, it took three full weeks before 1st Paratroop Battalion was deployed in Dagestan, where uh, Chechens intruded. So, But this uh, concept, of course, uh, I'll say that uh, these troops were built, according uh, General Colin Powell' advices. This uh, force have to be used in one moment, massively, to fulfill its military task and be withdrawn immediately. It's not ready for occupation or long term uh, battle. So my feeling is that in 2000 Eight uh, two uh, 2012, Russian troops were prepared for local conflicts only. The idea was to gain victory in local conflict. All other, all higher stages of conflicts, were, uh, can be solved only uh, with help of nuclear uh, weapons. Speaking of ab- end, but now situation is changing because our successes, in Ukraine lead uh, to full-scale confrontation with the West. And you cannot uh, answer this uh, confrontation uh, with uh, a few dozens of ground brigades. You you badly need something bigger. And now, in order to answer the challenge of uh, war against global adversary, Russian armed forces are returning to mass mobilization concept. They claimed they established 25 uh, division formations during 2016. <coughs> 25, but the number of uh, troops, the number or the total number of russian armed forces according to the official papers was uh, uh, raised only on 10000 men which enough not for 25 but for only one division it moves us so we are returning to a mass mobilization concept to these skeleton units uh, and uh, Another way, Russia now is eating very quickly all fruits of the reform. Returning to the equipment, uh, Russian military industry did not pass through this severe reform, which happened with armed forces. And I am more or less skeptical on these uh, victorious reports of. Uh, vice premier ragozin and defense minister Shoigu about new and new equipment russia armed forces receive look let's look what's going on, on the ground everybody speaking about fantastic uh, equipment used in syria come on The main tool uh, of Russian attacks are SU-24 and SU-25, which are a little bit younger than me, but not too much. (laughs) Uh, So uh, speaking particular on PAC-50 and uh, and, uh, Armata, it was very ambitious programs. But without uh, huge announcement, they said that now they limit the number uh, uh, of this uh, equipment they wanted to procure. They started with the idea to have 56 uh, fighters, uh, jet fighters of uh, fifth generation, but Few, uh, I think uh, two years ago, uh, when conflict began and crisis began, um, uh, um, deputy of defense minister said that we should limit eight, only 18 uh, <laughs> uh, 18 uh, fighters. The same with Armata. It's the, it's Suddenly, they understood feet. that uh, this tank is so expensive, and it comes, according its price, not to tank, but to jet fight, <laughs> uh, and... Does it fly? No, it's no. not fly. Uh, in fact, nobody, nobody knows, uh, except these official uh, bravour uh, statements, nobody knows how this equipment works. And, uh, for example, okay, uh, with all my heart, I believe uh, in these huge qualities of new jet fighter, but suddenly we know that this jet fighter has uh, no new engine. Oops. So uh, uh, speaking about Armata, they had very big plans uh, of hundreds of Armata tanks to be purchased to year 2020. Now they, they said, OK, we'll limit all those who were built for Victor, uh, Victory Day parade in Moscow. And then we'll, uh, we'll uh, test them for some years we, in troops. And only then we'll make a decision on mass production. It's more or less clear that uh, now Russia is, with all these talks of new equipment, Russia now is producing old uh, T-72. So uh, again, uh, we have very few information on real situation within military-industrial complex to come any serious conclusion on uh, how, on what level this new equipment I- is uh, received by troops.
1: And the general had a two-finger intervention, please. Yeah, um,
2: I think also if we pull back and look at the Russian Federation from an economic, we talked about the demographic, um, and and their systems their new systems are are you know. It, they there a lot of them are being worked through proofs of concept in syria and elsewhere and um, ukraine but they're expensive and they're not particularly numerous uh and and um uh, they are working uh they're working modernizations across their entire force they've got the new boré submarine debris class the bulava missiles you've got uh, precision um, weapons that they're going to be flying. They're flying off their blackjacks. And, 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 the, and the tanks are, are, they have, you know, the t four, the, the Armata and others. This is expensive stuff. And it's across, and, and some up, uh, the S-400 and all the stuff that they're putting on their ships. They want a new, um, a new supersonic bomber. Sounds yeah. familiar? Yeah, so, so it's ambitious. Um, they've made great strides, but the economy, which in '14 a, a trifecta, um, oil prices uh, collapse, inflation doubles or more, and sanctions on top of it. And then just last year, they announced, uh, uh, you can keep me straight, so five or six percent reduction in their defense budget Absolutely. at a time, their modernization budget at a time. So they have, they have a lot of things they want to do, They have the legacy military they still have to staff and field. They have a countryside they have to feed, which might have been one reason a a number of them were out in the street the last few days on the corruption business. So I think that they're doing a lot of balancing, and it affects the modernization.
1: And I cannot stress enough that corruption uh, is corroding uh, every good part in the Russian economy, including areas that are directly affecting the military-industrial complex. I was in Moscow in winter. The talk of the town was the investigation of the Russian rocket launch, space launch industry. The space launch industry and the building of ICBMs is pretty much the same. And if people are stealing precious metals that goes to engines that make these rockets fly and rockets explode at launch, It could be not just the civilian launches, but also the military ICBMs that may be affected. FSB was involved in investigation. And you saw recently that the head of the Russian space program committed suicide while in detention in Moscow by stabbing himself three times in the heart. And with that, um, let's move to Ambassador Herbst. Ambassador, we saw the pressure that Russia put on Ukraine. We saw the fear that that military operation engendered in other Russian neighbors and in the neighborhood, in Poland, in the Baltic states, and elsewhere. Now we have a new administration in town. Uh, We have uh, Mr. Trump who made statements about improving relations with Russia. And then we heard General Mattis and uh, General McMaster Uh, Talking in terms that you and I recognize as the standard Washington-Russia policy and Russian threat assessment, if you were briefing Mr. Trump and Mr. Mattis and Mr. McMaster, what would be the three points you would have made to them?
0: First, uh, Russia is a revisionist power that wants to, that's willing to take risks and use force to change the post-Cold War order established in Europe. Two, uh, NATO and the US are much stronger than Russia. And if we pursue the right sober but strong policies, we can manage the danger that Russia represents. Its victories have come because the West has been sleeping. Three, the Warsaw summit, NATO summit last summer, took strong steps towards deployments in the east in the Baltic states, Poland, and Romania, which I think put us on a good course to manage the Russian danger to NATO. What we need now is a strong forward defense in Ukraine by providing much more military assistance. Moscow is already bogged down in Ukraine. If they are further bogged down, they are much less likely to create problems in the Baltic states. Excellent. Um,
1: Let's get back to some of the consequences of this power projection, especially uh, vis-a-vis Syria. General, is Russia seriously thinking about getting back into the Middle East? And I would ask the other two panelists to contribute to that. We've seen Syria done, not just for the sake of keeping the bases in Tartus and Latakia, new air, air force base in Syria is also demonstration uh, grounds for Russian military weapons, and Raghuizen and others openly said, we will sell weapon systems that demonstrated themselves or performed so well in Syria. But what about Egypt? What about Libya? What about the the Arabian Peninsula? Uh What's the agenda there?
2: Well, I mean, we're almost talking concepts of, uh, it's, it's a belated word for Russia, but imperial reach. However, I think in the current circumstances, if you look at its fleet and its ability to project power, to put robust or try to put robust presences in Egypt, let alone Libya, uh, or in the Pacific, will be very, very difficult um, uh, for them. Um, And I'm not convinced that they're looking for, for massive power projection out of these places. I think they want to maintain influence. Um, uh, Syria is a different story. Not, Syria, in my mind, is going to be a Russian Western. Uh, Syria is going to be a Russian enclave for a long time. They've got the A two A D umbrella in there. Uh, they have an ally that they're tightly knit to, uh, and they're getting a lot of regional regional credibility. Uh, and 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 that play also plays well at home. Though, what we've learned in a place like. Syria, in the Middle East, bad things happen to foreign militaries that indefinitely insert themselves into a civil or sectarian war, as we have learned. So this will play out for a while in Syria. I think that they will make inroads and look to, uh, to create, if you will, bases, may, maybe more for sustainment and things like that, rather than big fleets that they don't have right now going to libya and and sasha and, and avoided
1: we, my question about yeah. the, the next ulyanovsk but uh, you know they don't
2: have yeah that. and you saw with, with the kuznetsov it needs places to go but we have to take it seriously because um they they, they want at least presence in these places we've heard about the flirtation with the vietnamese at uh and and of course with uh, duterte in in the philippines we have to watch this but if they do that again that's a lot of stretch for a force that I think Syria was really quite something, but that's a lot of power protection with a force and it isn't built yet for that.
1: But there is an aspect of that, of Russia cooperating with Iran. For the first time, we saw Russia using an Iranian air base uh, to uh, base the bombers for Syria bomb runs, and the Russians said, oh, we're saving a lot of money by running it out of Iran. Ambassador Herbst, you served in the Middle East. What is your sense of what is Russian-Iranian cooperation in Syria and beyond uh, Uh, is accomplishing and has a potential to accomplish in the longer run, the medium
0: to long run? I think we're seeing the high watermark of Russian-Iranian cooperation. And we're seeing the high watermark because they are both animated strongly by um, antipathy towards the United States. Uh, if you look at the course of Iranian-Russian relations over decades or centuries, you see largely they were at odds. But basically since the end of the Soviet Union, um, they have worked together, less so in the 90s when, when Yeltsin was pursuing a policy of rapprochement with the United States, although even then there were differences over the Boucher reactor and over Russian arms shipments to Iran. But since, Putin, since Putin's come into office, they have been working very closely. Uh, even when the Iranian nuclear deal was done, and Russia played a partly helpful role, they also played a partly protector role for a Iran that did not want to head in the right direction towards a deal. And, of course, they have not been daunted by Iranian missile tests since the nuclear deal was was, um, sealed, whereas we have been imposing additional sanctions. Bottom line, I don't think it's likely that 20 years from now, you'll have anti-American regimes in power in Iran, and maybe not in Russia as well. <laughs> and when one of those regimes changes, the basis for their close cooperation will, will diminish substantially.
1: Do you want to say a few words about Egypt? I mean, we had uh, a rocky relationship with Egypt, especially in uh, the previous administration. How, how do you think the Russians are trying to take advantage of that?
0: Well, they, they have taken advantage of it because the United States has this predilection for democracies and a willingness to slam even its friends over non-democratic or uh, non-democratic practices or human rights abuses. And is a natural way for Russia to to step in behind us, not just in the Middle East. Uh, But by the same token, I think the Trump administration's approach will probably be a little bit different than Obama's. And this may also mean less leverage for the Russians in approaching Egypt. Uh, I think it's much more interesting what they're doing with Libya.
1: Uh, Alexander Goltz, uh, you've seen the Soviet power ebbing and flowing in the Middle East. Uh, You see now Russia coming back to Syria in force, doing innovative things like shooting uh, missiles from the Caspian into Syria. We haven't seen anything like that, even during the Cold War. How much appetite is there in Russia The Crimea operation was supported by a vast majority of Russians. Ukraine war, probably less enthusiastic, but still supported. Syria, kind of far from home. How much appetite do you think is there going to be in Russia for a sustained, continuous, and potentially expensive presence uh, in the Middle East?
3: First of all, I don't think that um, the main Russian goal in Syria is to establish base or uh, to put uh, Middle East on its control. Uh, The main goal of this operation, in my opinion, there were two main goals in this operation. First, to overcome isolation because of Crimean crisis. You, You Americans do not want to speak to us. Come on, we'll push you to speak uh, when we put under danger lives of your pilots. And it happened. Uh, uh, You don't want to speak to us? We'll push you to do so. Second, and it's one of the basic uh, idea of Kremlin, is fight against color revolution everywhere. Uh, Mr. Putin thinks in terms of... mm, um, great alliance uh, which have to prevent all changes uh, in the world. Remember, the operation began next day after his uh, speech uh, in United Nations. And what was the main topic of this speech? People have to live with the dictator they have. Because all other rulers will come as the result of foreign conspiracy.
1: That's like 1815, the holy alliance in Europe to sustain empires. Absolutely. It's
3: directly what I meant. So uh, speaking about uh, Russian feelings, feelings of Russians uh, about all these wars, I think that uh, Russian, and Mr. Putin uh, is very accurate here, Uh, Russian public opinion divides very sharply the opportunity to lose their son, sons, the conscripts, in some kind of foreign war. Or it is, uh, you will lose, uh, if a uh, soldier, if troops, uh, professional military dies in the battle, it's his job. Nobody is complaining. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's not occasionally that uh, thinking about possibility of these new operations abroad, uh, uh, Russian authorities moved to such very strange decision, which breaks a lot of fruits of reform, the idea of short-term military contract for six months to participate, particular military operation abroad. Of course, from... uh, from legal point of view, these guys are not mercenaries. Mm. But uh, if to speak about psychology, of course, those who, fa- who, who sign contract for six months to participate in particular military operation, their psychology, of course, is not psychology of professional military, but psychology of mercenary, no doubt. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, this war in Syria suits uh, uh, rank and file Russian uh, because it looks like a computer game. He's uh, lying in his sofa watching TV and watching how our brave pilots uh, destroy uh, uh, these bloody terrorists. Uh, I must say that. our military intelligence is uh, the best military intelligence in the world. Because they manage uh, to say after each operation, not only how many terrorists were killed, <laughs> but also what was the nationality of these terrorists.
1: <laughs> and and uh, they also say that there were zero civilians killed after every airstrike. Yes, rare strike.
3: yeah. Uh, so uh, right. uh, I, I must say something that's uh, strikes me most of all. At the end of uh, 2015, a very interesting article appeared in Russian uh, uh, in a magazine of uh, uh, the most, uh, um, most independent Levada uh, Center, most independent sociologists. And uh, this, uh, believe me, uh, this article shocked me. Because as the result of these opinion polls, they came to conclusion that first first time, after Second World War, Russians are dreaming of war. And it, 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 for me, I, I cannot accept this uh, to be true. But uh, uh, thinking of about all losses during Second World War, uh, I cannot accept it. But nevertheless, uh, these types of proxy war Uh, of uh, hybrid war, of this computer war in Syria, it moves uh, Russian public consciousness to idea that war is not hostilities. It's not a horror. We can even more, as sociologists say, in minds of many young Russians, War will clear everything. Because uh, our day's world is too complicated. And war can simplify it as they want. In my mind, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's, it's not acceptable for, for me. But uh, uh, this uh, factor exists. Thank you, Sasha. Um,
1: actually, in the uh, radical Islamist uh, ideology, uh, forgiveness for sins uh, when you go to jihad, uh, and if you're killed in jihad or if you become a jihadi, that is also an important and parallel uh, element. Uh, if, even if you were a bad person, uh, engaging in a war makes you a good person, which we can provide philosophical analysis on that. Uh, and speaking of uh, radical Islamists, uh, General Zwick, uh when you worked in Russia and before after. Uh, The relationship between American military and Russian military sometimes is collegial, sometimes is that of mutual respect. Uh, And uh, President Trump talked about uh, a joint fight uh, with Russia against ISIS. And of course, uh, Senator McCain and others take a different position. not too long ago, General uh, Dunford and General Gerasimov met, uh, I think twice in the last two months, once in Baku, and the second time, I think, in Turkey, uh, discussing the modalities of our fight in Syria against ISIS. Uh, how do you see this? Is this uh, military cooperation in the time of confrontation? Are these two parallel tracks? There are overflights, aggressive overflights of Russian airplanes against American vessels in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, etc. cetera. Uh, there are Russian submarines doing something 30 miles or 17 miles, I don't remember, outside of our territorial waters, but uncomfortably close uh, to the homeland. And at the same time, we have to talk to them about deconflicting Syria. Uh, where is it going? In my mind, there's no
2: alternative about to have, have uh, some form of credible conduits uh, between key military defense and political leadership between the two countries um, uh, sh- short of war. Um, and the state of those conduits uh, today are less than they were during the height of the Cold War, for starters. Um, I would say we're more in the deconfliction mode than the cooperation mode. Um, And uh, again, when you have two nuclear-tipped countries as we are, where everything now and decisions are made in a cyber-fast environment, where you're wondering what the other guy's doing, you're worried about the other guy getting the jump on you, surprise, Um, you've got to have eyes wide open, frank, direct conduits. That doesn't mean you agree on everything. But you may gain understandings. But if you have no contact, if something were to break out, not just in Europe, but out in the Sea of Okhotsk, or an accident in the Black Sea, or somewhere in the Arctic, uh, these things can spiral very, very quickly out of control. in this uh, hair-trigger, almost, environment, because you don't have that, that layer, if you will, of, uh, of deconfliction at multiple levels. So I think it is, a, it is very, very, and you know what? Without having that, those conduits, you can't even address and get at possible solutions. Let alone, you talk about cooperation, that is a whole nother discussion in the context of, of Syria. How do our nations, with two completely different thought processes, how you wage peace and conflict, rules of engagement? How do you, you, you know, these are all things you have to work if you're gonna develop a, a closer, if you will, operational relationship with the, Russian, with the Russian military. Not saying not to, but these are all the things you're gonna to have to ask. Um, and, and the transparency when there is a mistake. When we make a mistake, in deployment, God forbid the horrible thing that just happened in Mosul or, or with the Syrian soldiers uh, a few months ago, uh, 63 of them. Now, our counterpart it was involved in other things, but they will never, ever admit it, whether it is the shoot down of MH17 through proxies or it's the UN convoy or elsewhere. And we have to develop a better a transparency, because without that, in some modicum of, of, of understanding, which leads to some pragmatic trust where you can, you can't share information, you can't share intelligence, then where do you move from that? We've got to find a way, though.
1: And uh, all I can say is that uh, you know, I worked on Russia all my life, and the level of vitriol you find today in Moscow, the level of distrust you find today in Washington, is just off the charts. And the question is, can we walk it back? How? Uh, so my question to Ambassador uh, Herbst, it's, it's pretty much a consensus that Russia is at least a potential adversary if not engaged you know in view of um, uh, computer hacks and whatnot, engaged in hostile activities, where do you see the urgent need to build deterrence and defense, and where do you see still uh, possibilities for some kind of a dialogue, uh, arms control, <laughs> or uh, what what is the balance of
0: power versus Dialogue. I think, for the first, first of all, we need clarity, strategic clarity, moral clarity. And if we have that clarity, we recognize that the Kremlin today is one of the world's two great nuclear superpowers with either the second or the third strongest conventional military forces, and they are prepared to change borders in Europe by force. That means that without a doubt, they are an adversary. That is the most single most important fact we need to understand. Once we understand that and we recognize the weaknesses of um, their military circumstances and their economy, we can produce policies that will stop them from further aggression and limit their danger. As we do that, we need to remove the um, problem of an incidental incident relating to their flying very close to our planes, our US and NATO planes and ships uh, in Europe. That we can do at the same time. If we pursue the right policy to stop Kremlin aggression, remember their aim is to seriously weaken NATO, seriously weaken the EU and the transatlantic partnership, all things which are essential to our security. If we pursue the right policies to stop them, we can at the same time engage them in areas where we have mutual interests. We can then find out if they really are interested, for example, in going after Islamic extremism, which is not their operation currently in Syria. But again, we need moral and strategic clarity to stop them from producing much greater damage in Europe. Uh, Alexander
1: Goltz, you spent your life writing about the Russian military. Your network uh, of contacts in Moscow is unparalleled. Do you feel that these guys, these Russian military generals and officers, colonels, what have you, and people who give them orders, are they really interested in a war with the United States? Or are they inter- wh- what, is a so- what kind of conflict, ideally, they want to get engaged in? Because it's clear to me they want some kind of a conflict. They don't want a chummy, friendly, you know, fuzzy relationship, clearly. But what is it that they're trying to accomplish?
3: Uh, look, uh, there are no military in the world who are dreaming about conflict. They prefer peacetime, I think. But uh, to be honest, I think uh, nobody, uh, no military, neither Kremlin wants the war. They want something different. And it's a problem in my mind. They want something that doesn't exist. They uh, want the place at Yalta table. Yalta table doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, they took but, Yalta so but, they could put uh, a table uh, there, right?
3: But uh, Mr. Putin <laughs> really believe, believes that this table exists. And in my opinion, all this Ukrainian crisis arose from Putin's feeling that somebody won't kick him off, the, off this table. Uh, so military might, in their mind, is uh, the most effective instrument to assure everybody that we are sitting this table. And it it looks, uh, you ask about ideal conflict. Uh, uh, When I think about worst case scenario, I think uh, not uh, about somebody's aggression when tanks are breaking borders as it happened during Second World War. I'm thinking about First World War scenario. Nobody wanted to fight. But everybody wanted to scare each other. At that time, uh, general staffs had new toy, mobilization planning. And all future participants, they switched on their mobilization planning. And from some point, things began to happen automatically. The escalation went automatically. In our world, look, Mr. Putin not once uh, said uh, that uh, during Crimea, he thought about putting on alert uh, our strategic rocket forces. God knows what does it mean. Nevertheless, imagine that in crisis situation, Russia announced. We're putting on alert our strategic rocket forces. I, it's no doubt that um, uh, its uh, counterparts in Washington will stay the same. And from that particular moment, escalation will begin. But comparing with uh, First World War, we'll have not uh, weeks to stop this machine. We'll have hours, if not minutes. Um, Parting remarks,
1: parting words before we go to Q&A. Let's start with Ambassador Herbst. I'm good, thank you. You're good, Sasha? It's fine. Okay, (laughs) General? Yes. Um,
2: You know, if I were to recommend policy, it would be a dual-track approach with the Russian Federation. First and foremost is that we protect our allies, support our partners. Um, and we maintain our our our, our 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 morals, our ethics, our beliefs, and within that framework, where we can pragmatically try to bridge, bridge with the Russians, we push back on, on, uh, on any on, on their negative behaviors but uh, but the heart of all of this is that we have a system and a structure, we have allies. We have countries that mean a lot to us and and we mean a lot to them, and that is our core in this world today. Russia does not have that. Um, Saying that, protect them, and then find a way uh,
1: um, to, uh, to bridge,
2: and failing that,
1: to deter. I agree, and I would just add from my own engagement The information component, the communication of ideas, being able to talk uh, to the Russian-speaking audiences, not just Russians, but uh, citizens of other countries in the region, including citizens of neighboring countries who speak Russian. Uh, This is a very important component that was neglected as we neglected our international broadcasting for so long. Um, I started out in the tail end of the Cold War being involved in broadcasting research, not in broadcasting itself, but broadcasting research. That was a successful operation. A component of our victory in the Cold War was the ability to effectively communicate ideas that were alternative to communism. I think we lost that. Secondly, building the expertise. I look around the average age of our Russia experts I'm somewhere in the middle there. Uh, we need the new young generation of Russian speakers, Russian doers, people who understand not only the language, but the history, the politics, the religion, the geography. Oh, I said that word, geography, which is not taught in American schools very well. So uh, there is something this administration needs to think about. It's how to maintain the vital expertise, not just on Russia, on China, on the Arab world, on the broader Muslim world, for places from where bad things may come and hit us, as we saw in 2001. And with that, uh, let's move to Q&A. Please introduce yourself. Uh, State your name, affiliation. Keep it to about maybe 30 seconds max. And make it a question, please. And I'll start with the gentleman right mm-hmm. here.
3: Uh, Mike Smith, um, Atlanta
4: Council member. That's for the General Alexander. Um, thanks. Considering the uh, evolution promoted. of our SOCOM and SOF forces over the past 15 years, what sort of comparable changes have you seen in the, in the Russian uh, SOF forces, special operations forces, and how, how have they kept pace with our,
0: how, we, how we've been applying our SOCOM units over the past 15 years?
2: um i'll make a quick stab at that and then turn to, to sasha they're pretty good they're they're they're, uh, they're elites um uh, they uh, did a really they, they showed a real capability to modulate if you will their presence and their capability in crimea uh certainly in eastern ukraine um it will they they they, it would, they would lead right behind cyber and anything that was offensive. Uh, they get the, the, the very best, if you will, of the, the forces. Uh, though they're, I wouldn't put them in the equivalent uh, with all the technology and everything else is US and some allied soft, they're very good.
3: Um, I have a few things uh, to add to general because as you know, all, de- all pro- uh, questions dealing with our special forces are top secret. Uh, so, uh, w- what, is, uh, what is clear and obvious? Uh, first, uh, they managed to get off of uh, previous Cold War tasks. As, w- as we remember, the pre- during the Cold War, uh, these uh, special forces were prepared, first of all, for nuclear sabotage. Hmm to deploy uh, nuclear mines uh, somewhere in so during the threatening, so-called threatening period, which means period before the war. So it was their main task. Now, uh, uh, organizationally, uh, it was established special command for special forces, new, co- new command within Russian army. Uh, armed forces. And now they conduct, uh, they are well-prepared and uh, well-trained. So uh, recently uh, from Mr. Shoigu, we knew that uh, it's not clear, is it a part of uh, special forces that we have so-called informational troops uh, within uh, Russian armed forces, and it's... Uh, it's is uh, it cyber, or is it no, trolls uh, Nobody knows, maybe troll uh, Look, it. the question appeared uh, from the question who is conduct, that we have, it was Zhirinovsky who asked this question, uh, Who asked uh, uh, why not to return uh, to old uh, Soviet tradition? He said, AIDS department of general staff. In fact, it was not AIDS department, not of general staff, (laughs) but of uh, Glavpur, main political department of Mm -hmm. Russian armed forces, which uh, was responsible for conducting psychological warfare. And Shoigu answered, we have something much better. We have informational troops. God knows uh, uh, what does it mean in reality. But uh, if we think that uh, uh, the main approach of Russian military thinkers is that you cannot divide the situation, the, the war and the peace situation now. And uh, General Gerasimov, chief of our general staff, in fact said that uh, war and disinformation is lasting permanently. My question is what do these uh, uh, informational troops doing in uh, peacetime? Do they. Um, uh, conduct some kind of operation or not? It's a big question. General. Just um, um, information ops, in
2: many ways, is another strategic front. Uh, and, um, and I think that, uh, that the Russians would see that as part of their entire organizing concept. A Couple of other items when we talk about special operations, but I think it permeates into the main force. The Russians have really improved in the last few years. Um, joint operations. The different services are working better together and integrating, if you will, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance far better than they did. And I believe with the special operations, but also forces, especially in Syria, they're learning coalition warfare. They're learning to work with
4: Kurds, with Kurds Turks. and uh,
2: Turks and Iranians and, and managing the very difficult Shiite militias who they don't particularly like, uh, getting at the ambassador's point where they're having some challenges in Syria. Um, so so they are much, they are, they're much more modern, if you will, than that 2008 clumsy military that went into Georgia.
1: All right, uh, Andrea Liriona was patiently waiting. Uh, we, can we get a mic there? Andrei? L- raise your hand.
4: No mic. It's okay. yeah. here. Uh, uh, could I ask a distinguished panelists to think
1: about unthinkable? Uh, just let's imagine very improbable, unrealistic, completely fantastic situation. Um, just
5: one bad morning, we woken up, uh, learning from you that Belarus is occupied by little green men, or big green men, or by anyone?
1: Men and women.
5: Uh, OK. okay. Um, just please don't discuss unrealistic, this scenario, how unrealistic is it? Just could you give your view? What would be the reaction of the United States to this particular event?
1: Let's start with Ambassador. He worked for the State Department. So what's the State Department reaction?
0: It's, it's difficult to say. <laughs> uh, I, I would say um, I could I could give you maybe a reasonable response to what might be the what might be the view of say General Mattis and um, General McMaster on the one side, and what might be the view of Trump on the other. Um, I think that the what 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 Ariel refers to as the Washington consensus on Russia, although this is a consensus is relatively new over the past I say year a year and a half. According to that consensus, this would be a confirmation that we have a serious problem in the Kremlin requiring a strong posture, certainly within NATO, and finding a way to strengthen the other countries in the gray zone between NATO and Russia. With Trump, it's unclear. Um, On the one hand, he might say, for the same way he seems to have ignored Ukraine, that what is Belarus? We have bigger fish to fry with ISIS, which, of course, is strategically inept, to make that statement. On the other side, however, he has said consistently, when he was running for the presidency, after he won, and since he's become president, that the Kremlin has committed aggression because Obama was weak. Well, by that analysis, his weakness is what led Putin into Belarus, and he might respond very strongly, even more strongly than Mike, Madison, McMaster. Interesting. Sasha?
3: I don't think uh, I'll satisfy you. But I think that, in fact, nothing can be done when uh, nuclear power breaks international law. You cannot begin to fight against nuclear power. So we can suppose that uh, it will be strengthening of NATO countries. It will be very strong appeal. To those who are not, who are still not NATO members in Europe, to join NATO as quick as possible, it will be sanctions. But uh, nothing differs uh, dramatically pro- from what had happened during Crimea annexation and then this proxy war in Donbas.
2: What may, may appear as a near-term near uh, attempt to uh, overturn, in a Russian perspective, of a color revolution or some variation, uh, they would be committing a, a, an act of strategic folly uh, that, that for them could bring down their regime. Um, this would, again, uh, even for those in Europe uh, that doubt, if you will, uh, their, uh, their, their preemptive aggressive uh, tendencies, uh, this would call into full sway uh, that this is a, as Ambassador said, a revisionist nature, nation, um, and, and this certainly will energize uh, NATO defensively, and emphasize defensively, and, um, and, and Russia now will be in Belarus, and they will have even more economic and all these other things um, uh, levied on it, uh, whatever it has done to move out of a prior state, it's it's back, and, and Russia will be in long, great long-term Problem, so how do we so I think this is the type of messaging that needs to go on Beforehand because in theory there will have been something I don't say it will be Maidan-ish, but something already going on to give that and and, um, and basically the message is don't I understand your history. I know your tendencies Don't it will, it will not end well for you um, uh, And and there are other ways to resolve this
1: And just to disagree with Andrei, I don't think it's unthinkable. I think the probability is less than 50%, but they ordered 800 trains for the big Zapad, the West exercise for this year, and we'll see what what, will happen. I don't think we're going to go to
3: Nobody checked this
1: data. Uh, (laughs) Actually, I did, with the Belarusian embassy here.
3: Uh, Okay. Okay. Uh, Yes, but uh, who can me explain uh, how you can move these thousands of uh, cars through the most um, um, through the single railroad? In fact, how can can you do it in practice? Stop all movement or what? Uh, This is
1: not a question. To me, this is a question for guys who are managing the railroads. (laughs) So um, clearly, we're not going to have a nuclear war. We're going to denounce it. We may or may not have sanctions, because the Europeans are fed up with sanctions as it is. And we're sort of trying to hold the sanctions together. But beyond that, if it's within the Soviet perimeter and a NATO country is not involved, there's no Article 5. There's no international obligation for us to step in. And that's, I think, hard.
2: It, it would be a major, major, major bite for Russia in the current circumstances because there's no guarantee it will be a completely peaceful occupation, especially the more west you go in Belarus. Now you've got to hold it, and uh, yeah, you'll get some Belarusians that will be all in, but you're going to have to put MVD. It's just yet another thing with the five frozen conflicts going on. Belarus, uh, this is an ele- we have to remember this is an 11-time zone country. Russia's Eurasia, and it's got vast territory and borders to deal with. So to do something like that, and it's possible, would be consequential. And uh, there would have to be some real hard thinking, I think, in the Kremlin uh, uh, to go or no go on this. And that's the arc here. We have to be thinking this through and, and anticipating it and ideally messaging it before it happens.
1: Good. Um, the lady right here. Please introduce yourself and make it short.
5: Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of WIUU in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, Thank you. I have a question that has to do with the far distant territories that uh, Russia has been engaging with. Right after you you mentioned, spoke of uh, Putin's statement at the UN and talking about how countries that have their leadership, we shouldn't be meddling in their leaderships. And then that coincided post the change in Russia's engagement with Turkey, pre to coup to post-attempted coup, the conversations between Mr. Putin and Mr. Erdogan. And then, uh, and then the kinds of conversations that uh, are taking place with uh, EC and uh, in Egypt, and here we have two very, Egypt much further than Syria. Would you like to comment on the goals of such far-reaching in light of the, co- the conflict in what you've just stated about far- far-reaching versus closer to home? Thank you. Um,
3: my feeling is that uh, uh, Turkey is now extremely important. Uh, for Mr. Putin, uh, for obvious reason, he uh, he had the idea, or he said he had uh, the idea of broad international coalition fighting IS. This idea failed, so uh, uh, it uh, comes to idea of minor coalition: Turkey, Iran, and Russia. Uh, and it's it's very important to uh, to have. Uh, a permanent contact <coughs> to Turkey leader because it's absolutely clear that uh, Russia have uh, absolutely different uh, tactical goals on the ground in Syria uh, uh, and from time uh, when uh, look uh, Russia decided to uh, to support uh, Kurds uh, Russia. According to Kurds leaders, uh, Russia established special training centers there near the uh, Turkish troops. And for God's sake, you need a very, very close coordination in order to avoid any kind of uh, direct military clash. I think uh, Egypt. Uh, uh, I am not great expert in this region, but uh, my understanding is that uh, uh, Russia is thinking about uh, something, uh, some kind of limited operation in, in Libya. The, at least there are rumors, uh, as you know, special uh, Russian special forces were found, or. Uh, 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 representatives of Russian private military companies were found uh, on the ground in Libya. So uh, it's quite possible. And in case Russia is going to conduct some kind of operation, of course, uh, Egypt is extremely important. I think I saw a
1: hand right here. And let's, let's start taking two questions. Together, so the gentleman right here, and then the lady in
0: the back. Um, uh, Aaron Kareva from the McCain Institute. Uh, two very short questions. Then, uh, the first one is uh, Ambassador Herbst talked about uh, defensive weapons to Ukraine. Um, I just wanted to hear uh, what the rest of the panel thinks that the likely result, directly response from Russia would be. I mean, some people say, of course, the Russians have escalation dominance. I uh, yeah, would just like to hear your thoughts on that. And the other one, maybe this is a little off, but uh, uh, given the, the the Russian capabilities, and we were, you were talking about the moving in fast, how does this square with, with like other European militaries? I'm not. I mean, I'm not talking about the U.S. military. Maybe this is off topic, but I just want to hear what what you had to say in about terms
1: that. Terms of response, what? Do you yeah, mean?
0: in terms of re- response, or how okay. uh, how are the European militaries would be poised to deal with something like that?
1: Okay, and there was a hand in the back. Yeah, uh, Mike.
4: I'm Guru Holm from the Norwegian Broadcasting Public, former correspondent to Russia. Uh, well, my question is, is about the nature of the Putin regime, and it's first and foremost to uh, Mr. Gols. Uh, would you – there was a question about Belarus uh, and, and uh, eventually what would happen the day we woke up. Well, how likely is such a step from Putin? Is, is the nature of the Putin regime in this, so to speak, uh, expansionist? Uh, if there hadn't been for the other, if there hadn't been for NATO membership of the Baltic countries, would Russia have gone into the Baltic countries? Uh, and it's it's uh, it's not about only hypothetical things, but what can we expect the regime to do further if uh, surrounding states are weakened? And if other people want to comment, it, I'm just happy for that.
1: So it's not a question about occupied. TV series and Norway. It's about Mm -hmm. not about Norway. Mm -hmm. We are not so afraid Uh
4: about that. We don't fear so much. (laughs)
1: Okay, good. So three questions.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, Ford, uh, Ford weapons, uh, uh, defensive weapons in Ukraine. Um, I support that. Um, uh, Javelin type anti-tank weapons, uh, short-range air defense. Nothing, uh, nothing like tanks or anything like that, but the flip side of that, you do that, and then you message directly to the Russians. You say, listen, these are defensive weapons, and you know it. If, if you or your proxies don't press on them, you're not going to have T-72s knocked out or, or aircraft shot down. Answer is yes, lethal weapons for uh, Ukraine, but st- strong dialoguing of the Russians about it.
3: Short questions to General. Yeah. How many American instructors you need on the ground in Ukraine in case you deploy uh, little weapons there? Who will teach uh, uh, Ukrainian sold troops uh, to use these? Uh, th- they can be
2: uh, flown into uh, uh, Allied capitals or the United States. They can do the training in our own country or elsewhere. Uh, but these are these are anti tank weapons and 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 and, and, and the, the aggression will come the the, the proxies with the russians backing them will come in T72s and b 3s some and and, and uh, but the training uh, could be in uh, in all the way in, in western ukraine or in uh, or poland. in, uh,
3: in uh, or poland or germany
5: yeah.
3: um, again uh, my feeling is that uh, the main constraint uh, for United States to uh, send lethal weapons uh, to Ukraine is the feeling that together with uh, lethal weapons, you have to put some prominent number of advisors. And uh, we have, you have, uh, very negative experience in this uh, field when you send advisors, then you send somebody to defend advisors. they don't have to be that sophisticated, but I
0: understand what you're saying. Ambassador? Uh, I've already made my statement on on weapons. Uh, Actually, just one other thing. Um, I think that the Kremlin has two vulnerabilities in its operation in Ukraine. One is the economy and the sanctions impact on the economy, which costs them 1% to 1.5%. And I am confident that sanctions will be renewed this summer, despite the uncertainty here. The other is the fact the Russian public doesn't want Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. So casualties are a serious political problem, which is why providing anti-tank weapons is a good thing, because the Kremlin does not want Russian soldiers going home in body bags. Now, on the question regarding Russian intentions the regime in Belarus, uh, we don't know. The, there was a question about the Baltic states that's right, or that's right. beyond. That's correct. Yeah. We, we don't know if, if the Baltic states were not in NATO, would Russia go in? I do know, though, that no one predicted the Russian operation in the Donbass. Everyone was stunned by it. So Putin's willingness to take risks when countries are not members of NATO is high. And I think with that in mind, the fact that that Poland is in NATO is a very good thing. After all, Russia controlled eastern Poland as long as it controlled Crimea, going back to the late 18th century. Although the Poles were tougher to digest than the Crimeans. Uh, So having NATO that far east has proved to be a deterrence against aggression there. And while it's unfortunate that Russia conceives of that as a threat, in fact, Russia has created a situation um, which has ne- necessitated the expansion of NATO. Um, my
3: answer will be rather military-technical, if you like. Uh, uh, Russia is a, a militarized state. Uh, one of main features of militaris- militarized state is that all uh, political decisions are made on basis of military technical estimation. Now we are very lucky, to be true, uh, because no NATO, neither Russia have enough troops uh, in Europe for more or less serious advance operation. So. Uh, I've read uh, uh, these uh, uh plans evaluated by Rent Corporation if I am not about uh, Russian siege uh, of Baltic countries mm, to be very true I cannot uh, share the this planning for obvious reason uh, 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 they, uh, in their game, they used all troops Russia has in Europe (laughs) in order to attack uh, uh, Baltic countries. Uh, It's totally different uh, from my um, understanding of Russian military thinking. Uh, Of course, if somebody has in mind to attack Baltics, he he should keep uh, reserve... Uh, reserves, uh, at least to defend Moscow and Saint Petersburg. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I, uh, uh, for me, all these, uh, uh, all the theories, uh, looks a little bit sophisticated. What is very important, and I forgot this. Thank you. Uh, When I talk about um, some new features of Russian armed forces, of course, the main one is rapid deployment. But another deals not with uh, military technical things itself. It is very quick decision-making process. Because uh, who Mr. Putin have to uh, have advice to consult with only one guy, Mr. Putin himself, it took uh, uh, one hour for Russian f- Council of Federation to approve uh, use uh, troops in Ukraine, and less than t- ten minutes to approve uh, the use of force in Syria. Uh, less than ten minutes.
2: Yeah. I, I just on the nature of the uh, Putin regime uh, and um, in Eastern Europe. Uh, The Baltics. Um, uh, I I uh, I I, I strong. By the way, I think a key point is this ability for the Russians uh, to make quick decisions, what I call no-go decisions. But uh, I think again, I I talk about um, again uh, regime perpetuation is a big deal. This whole discussion of color revolutions. Uh, I don't have a shred of doubt um, that uh, that if the Putin regime. Thought that Belarus were wobbling its way to the West. Um, regime, a, a kind of nobody knows what the nature of the regime is more Russian, pro Russian than not, skitters away. That based on all the history and all the phobias and and Belarus being many ways a, a land wedge toward Moscow, that's where Napoleon marched through, that's where Army Group Center marched through, that even geostrategically, in the lifetime of the grandparents, they would have to, in their minds, go in there and, and, bring, that, and, and bring it back as a buffer. Uh, and meaning Belarus, is, is, will be, they'll look at it important in that way. Uh, so we have to watch that very, very clear- clearly, and the messaging has to be very, very distinct. Another very, very key aspect to all of this, uh, and uh, the ambassador uh, talked about the Warsaw Summit. This is enhanced foreign presence, NATO, very carefully but deliberately, small but real NATO battalions in the three Baltic uh, Repub- three Baltic states and an American one in Poland. The Russians know military. That is no. Offensive threat to them, but it is, a, it is a measure of NATO resolve, and it now makes them think really hard if they want to mess around in, 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 in that area where Article 5 lives. Danger of Belarus is if something were to happen, if it were to spill over uh, in some way, um, of course, with Kaliningrad and all of that, and that's something to watch. So, nature of the, your question, nature of the regime. Uh, Putin regime. I think if they thought that that that, uh, that Belarus were were tilting the way Ukraine looked, they would intervene. And so we have to be ready. And the messaging needs to be firm and hard before that eventually eventuality ever happens. And then finally. NATO battalions versus Russian battalions. The Russians have been training in a more classically conventional combat way uh, and operating that way uh, than we have over the last few years. And there would be probably some NATO uh, countries in a meeting engagement with a Russian uh, uh, equivalent unit that probably would not fare so well. But they're working hard on that within NATO to rectify that.
1: Good. Uh, Just uh, a quick comment on your question about the nature of the regime and expansions, not expansions. Uh, The Putin administration decided that uh, initially people who want Russian passports in Abkhazia, in the Crimea, in um, Transnistria can have Russian passports. Now I saw reports. I didn't check them, but I saw reports, Sasha saw it, that anybody who wants a Russian passport in the former Soviet Union? Well, think about Northern Kazakhstan, for example. It's all Russians and Russian speakers, compactly, you know, populating that area. What happens when they all get Russian passports? Good question mark. Uh, you were very patient, and the lady behind Bob, you. Two last questions, and then we have to wrap up. Um, my name is Bob Homans. I've been living in Ukraine for the past ten years, and I'm a sort of informal observer of what's going on. Um, General Swack, I have a question about um, your point about Russian demographic challenges. What is the, um, I understand that the only portion of the Russian population that's growing now is the Islamic portion. What is the um, involvement of Muslims in the Russian military? In the? Among draftees, among the officer corps, Um, I understand. You know, I read all these stories about how badly Russian draftees are treated. Are treated? Is this a problem, or 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 isn't it?
2: It's um, it's much better than it was, uh, but still a challenge, Bob. um, and I did see some units, um, and, and I think some of the, whatever you would call the round-out units and things like that would have more of a Central Asian flavor or, co- or Southern Russian Muslim flavor. Um, um, again, they've got, you know, th- th- they can be very good. Uh, they have really good units, and, and they have some really, really good capabilities, but that capability is uneven. Again, demographics, review, you all know this. 145 million, they've turned the death rate around. There's a mild growth rate right now, um, but it's mild. R- uh, Russian population, 75% west of the in Urals or west. The, all the way from the Urals to the, uh, to the Far East, uh, 25%. This is also a challenge. And then the nature of the demographic is changing, because the great Russians in the west still are at even or death rates. Where in the South, uh, the population is growing, where families are four to five to one, and in the West, well, 1.5 to two to one. So there's a demographic time, uh, ticking clock for them.
1: All right. We have two minutes late. Um, I'm sorry, we cannot take any more questions. What, the, the lady, can, can you do it real, real quick? And then that squeezes our response time.
2: Thank you so much. My name is Melino Ganesian, and I'm originally from Georgia but educated in the United States. My question is about the, uh, you mentioned
5: about the importance of your um, relationships with um, the United States with the non-NATO, but aspiring members as well. Um, What would would be your recommendations or maybe um, projections for the future relationships between the United States and countries,
1: not NATO members, but aspiring like Georgia? John, why why don't we kick it
0: off? I suspect this administration, and early indications are this will happen, will follow the previous administration, which means they'll see good relations, they'll promote reform, they'll try and help them with defense and internal uh, security. Um, But I don't think there's going to be any renewed interest from Washington, at least under this administration, in putting Georgia or Ukraine into NATO. Sasha? General? No? Um, it remains
2: a challenge. I, I use the word protect your allies and support your partners. And, and those partner nation that, if you will, that are, are in the front getting a lot of pressure, there are a lot of ways to support them uh, without going uh, uh, militarily. And I think that, that, that we would continue to support our, our, our partners every way we could. Uh, NATO remains an open door. Uh, but
1: I think we have to look, 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 take a long-term solution here. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, right on time, 5.30, thank the panelists. Thank you. You were a terrific audience. And thank you for coming to the Atlantic Council. Thank you for
0: for doing this. It was was brilliant. brilliant.